This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In her new book, Wonder Women, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection, Barnard College President Deborah Sparr argues that women have come very far in the struggle for power, but now face the tyranny of hyper-perfect images of working mothers and romantic notions of having it all. Recently, Sparr spoke with Knowledge at Wharton about the unlikely moment when she realized she had it all. Why we need to speak more openly about the trade-offs of being in a position of prominence and why it's time to stop telling women, I don't know how you do it all. We're here today with Deborah Sparr, president of Barnard College and author of the book, Wonder Women, Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection. Deborah, thanks for being with us today. Pleasure, thank you. So you draw a lot lot on your own experience in the book, including the opening scene where you describe the moment that you realized that you were having it all. Can you describe that and some of the realizations that stem from it? So this is one of these really horrible awkward moments that somebody probably shouldn't put in a book, but I, I did nevertheless. And and the book starts with this um, rather sad moment when I'm in the ladies' restroom at LaGuardia Airport, rushing to catch a plane and using a breast pump in the stall. And it really was that moment where a light bulb went off and, and I, you know, I realized, you know, somewhat ironically that this was having it all. This was what it was actually like to have a family and be a mom and have a career and be a working woman. And, you know, I realized that growing up when I imagined my life as a working as a working woman, this was not the image I had. And yet this was the image that I was living. And one of the things that's been interesting to me is um, all of my male friends who've read the book, uh, particularly when they read it in draft form, said, oh, please don't include this scene because it's just too embarrassing. And yet every woman who's read the book says, I was there. And I think there there is something about these horrible breast pumps that it, it, it is actually something that by almost by definition every working mother has to encounter. And she encounters it at a at a very vulnerable moment in her life and in her career because it, it is these moments when you when you realize that you're juggling and it's hard. Because mm-hmm. you do say, I guess one of the other things you say in the book is that the feminine ideal that you were just talking about that you saw when you were growing up was the Charlie girl in the perfume ad who she, she, you know, her hair is perfect, she's managing her children, she's managing her work, and everything is going perfectly. How do you think that cultural image has evolved? I mean, what do you think is sort of the Charlie girl of today's generation, and what are the impacts that she is had to that image is having? Well, sadly, I think we've made no progress and may, in fact, have, has, have slipped back in some scary ways. Because I think if you look at the images today, whether they be in magazines and movies and on television shows, career women are glamorous. Uh, they're always beautiful. They're actresses. They're models. Um, they, you know, they may have children and, you know, we, we may see some depiction of, of balancing acts. But, but they still look like movie stars and, and they still manage to pull off the kids and the career. And, you know, certainly if you read magazines, um, you're always getting a very sort of glamorized uh, view. So every female politician or CEO that does – that you do see in a magazine – is always made up and buffed up, and, and we see a beautiful uh, photo of her in her home, which almost always has been staged by an entire team of interior decorators before they do the, the photos. So we're still seeing these, these hyper-perfect images of working women. And, and we're also seeing still 
um, these hyper-perfect images of, of women as homemakers, you know, women who are delighted to be vacuuming their house or doing the laundry. So sadly, I mean, we, we, don't, we actually see fewer of the Roseanne bars, if you will, the women really struggling um, with working life. So I, I wish there were more progress in this area, but I don't see much. Mm-hmm. And I was also, um, when I was reading the book, I was remembering a college friend of mine recently had a baby, and she remarked, I think it was on Facebook, that, you know, multiple people after she had her baby said, oh, are you going to stay home? And when she said that she didn't plan to, they were saying, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm amazed that you can juggle it all and that you're doing that. And then nobody asked her husband either of those questions. Right. And it kind of made me wonder, like, what to what degree these constant discussions of can we have it all, are we having it all, how much are they actually perpetuating the problem? Well, I hate the phrase having it all. It's it's a horrible phrase. I don't know who created it, but we, we need to banish it from our vocabulary because it sets an expectation that is fundamentally impossible. No one has it all. And if the standard is all, then by, by definition, we're, we're, we're all going to fall below it. We're all going to fail. And it's also deeply gendered because when's the last time you saw anyone asking a man whether he has it all? You know, we just don't do that. And, and that's really this, this, um, this new, subtle, but, but very dangerous double standard that I talk about in the book. That, you know, even in very casual conversation, we make very different assumptions about how men will be parents and how women will be parents. And they do perpetuate not only the stereotypes, but they perpetuate a guilt because your friend probably is already starting to feel some levels of guilt. You know, maybe I should be staying home. Um, maybe they think I'm Wonder Woman and I'm actually not, whereas her uh, male husband just is sort of getting on with his life without these added levels of complexity. Mm-hmm. And yet, I mean, there has been a lot of talk in the past year or so, um, first of all, stemming from the article written by Anne-Marie Slaughter, arguing kind of that institutions have put a lot of roadblocks in the way for women in terms of rising up the ranks, and then also from the Lean In book by Sheryl Sandberg, saying that, you know, women sometimes are maybe creating their own roadblocks in some ways. I mean, what do you, where do you fall in that? Well, I between those two books, I fall smack in the messy middle um, because I, I think the issues that women face are partly of their own making and partly of societal making, but are mostly just complicated. And um, that's not a neat answer, but I think it's the accurate answer. And if you think about this historically, we had the same social structures for hundreds if not thousands of years, and they essentially worked. You know, the man's job was to have a job and earn money and provide for his family, and the woman's job was to bear children, uh, be faithful to the man, and take care of the home. In Marxist terms, it was a perfect division of labor. We turned this division of labor upside down for all the right reasons, to provide women with equality and opportunity and, and liberation. But we haven't really come up with a workable substitute for it. And the work of the home, the work of, of childcare, has not gone away. And so we really are left with quite a complicated situation. And I think it would it's actually unrealistic to believe we would have solved it in just two generations, which is what we have. So I think now we start, and we need to have men being part of this conversation, we need to start conceiving of substitutes, of new social structures. And they won't be quite so simple as women trying harder, because that doesn't address the problem. And I wish they could be as simple as saying, let's have better state-subsidized childcare, but I don't think that's going to happen. Instead, I think we need to change our expectations. Not that women can't be totally ambitious or competitive, but they have to realize that all is a bad idea. Um, Men need to come up with new models of fatherhood 
And I think we're starting to get there. But men face stereotypes as well. You know, we still don't have a great, and if you think about media, where's the media hero of the, the great dad who's also running a corporation you know, with, with a working wife in anything that seems even vaguely realistic? We need to change how our public schools function so that they make, they make it easier for working parents. We need to change how our organizations treat parents. Um, so so it's, it's a messy set of solutions. I think we can get there. Um, but I think we have to realize that there's nothing simple about this. We are going through a major revolution in social structure. And there are no easy solutions for it during revolutionary times. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of, I mean, at least a lot of the conversation is in the media, at least, or maybe in what, you know, people are hearing about in the mainstream is being, you know, it's coming from academia where you are or where Emily Slaughter is or was, or it's coming from maybe the CEO's office or the, you know, one of the executive office where Sheryl Sandberg is. So what is that? I mean, what does that mean for, I mean, like low-income women or middle-income women? I mean, is it easy to tell how can you tell a low-income woman that she needs to relax when it might be very hard for her to relax when well, she's doing it all? I, I think um, this is a really important question, and I don't think we spend enough time sort of being honest about this question. I think part of it is that all women face certain issues that cut across race and socioeconomic status and age, and I think that's the issue of expectations. So a poor woman of color who's a single mom faces massive expectations, you know, far greater than the ones I face. You know, she's still supposed to look look pretty and be sexually attractive and take care of her kids and bring home money and do it on her own. So the expectations cut across. But the workplace um, environments and the workplace problems are quite different. And I think we have to be honest in saying the kinds of things will work for women who are trying to become CEOs are very different from the women who are working 40-hour-a-week blue-collar jobs. They both have problems, but they're very different problems. For the blue-collar, pink-collar workforce, um, we have to think about pay equity. We have to think about uh, more flexible and more generous maternity leaves. We have to think about um, cheaper and more accessible child care. For the women who are in the higher-paid um, uh, sort of hoping to be CEO or, or more corporate jobs, the issues there are less about maternity leaves and more about balance and remaining competitive in the workplace. The issues there are more about whether or not women can take time off and then come back into the workforce. Um, the issues are about embedded sexism in terms of how people are promoted through the ranks. So I think there's a certain political correctness in, we, in, in which we try to lump all women together. And I, I think that's actually blinding us to the fact that we, we really need to think a little bit more sectorally about what will help women um, and also uh, minorities who face some of these same uh, obstacles in different different sectors of the workforce. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I definitely feel that there has been some admission in these discussions you know, that there are some professions that are more conducive to, say, having, you know, achieving that work, like, a fairly good work-life balance than others. I guess I wonder, I mean, is that okay? I mean, is it okay that maybe... Banking isn't one of them, or should there be changes to make it so it would be, or is there is that just not reality? I think part of it is not reality. I mean, I think if if you're talking about running anything, whether it be a bank, a hospital, a television station, a university, these are not 40-hour flexible workweek jobs. You know, if you're running an organization, it's a 24-7 job. That doesn't mean women can't do those jobs, but it means that the women who do do those jobs or aspire to those jobs have to um, either not have children or have partners who pick up the burden of the child care or have parents or in-laws who are very deeply involved in the child care 
or who manage to have their children very early in life and then move into those jobs. So I think women can do them, but I think we need to be, uh, we need to be honest that there are certain kinds of jobs that will never be part-time, flex-time, easily manageable. I also think that it's good to be honest, and particularly in talking to young women and young men, that if they, if they really are committed to having an active, enjoyable professional career and a working spouse and a couple of kids, that there are some professions or some fields within professions that will give them that flexibility. And I don't see that as, as stepping back or leaning out or opting out or whatever verb you want to use. I see it as just being practical. Um, you know, in my own case, I was ready to go into the Foreign Service. I had gotten in. I was ready to go. Um, and then something in the back of my mind just sort of triggered the thought that, gee, you know, the it's going to be harder to have a family and a husband in the Foreign Service. And I don't know that I ever sort of sat down and worked out the math, but I went into academia instead, um, which has given me uh, a lot of flexibility and a lot of control over my own productivity. Mm-hmm. Now, what would you say, I mean, one of your pieces of advice to women in the book is that they kind of should relax and realize that the only Wonder Woman is flying around in the invisible plane somewhere. That's right. (laughs) The magic bracelets. Right. And to sort of focus on what works instead of trying to have it all. But I guess I would think, I mean, I think I know, too, that sometimes that's a lot easier said and done. I mean, how, what are some ways that, how can we really divorce ourselves from kind of this need to be everything to everyone? Because I really do think it is kind of instilled in us very early it on, is, like you said. It is deeply instilled, although I think there is a moment right now that, that, that these conversations are occurring, these books are coming out, and I think they're healthy. And I think, you know, I'm seeing myself and I'm seeing other people sort of catching ourselves um, from falling into sort of saying and believing silly things, like the things you were talking about, uh, what people are saying to your friend, oh, you, you know, I don't know how you how you do it all. That's a silly thing to say to somebody. Nobody does it all. Um, like feeling compelled, you know, to constantly dress up when you're going out to have coffee with your friends. Um, like constantly feeling that the house has to be perfect. Um, constantly feeling that you have to bake cookies every single time for this for the school bake sale. So I think, uh, you know, I don't mean to trivialize it, but I think every little step we can take to sort of lower the, the stress level and be more realistic, I, I think it's very important for women who are in positions of some prominence to be more honest about the trade-offs they've made, mm-hmm. about the mistakes they've made, about the hard times they have. You know, if we're all out there selling our perfect lives, we're, we're really just perpetuating a myth um, for the next generation of women. And that kind of makes me wonder, like, I wonder how much do you think maybe social media has almost perpetuated that? Because it's sort of one of those things that you see as everybody's out to kind of create their brand it's on horrible. that, no matter what. It's horrible. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't spend that much time on social media, but I'm hearing more and more from younger women that social media is not only perpetuating these, these stereotypes, but is exacerbating them. Because, you know, nobody puts ugly photos on their Facebook page. You know, everybody puts themselves doing something wonderful, looking beautiful with, with glamorous right. people. Making and jam from scratch ma- Exactly, exactly. the table. Uh, yeah, th- you know, and this is, this is, you know, I think people realize that it's perpetuating all of these bad things, but it, 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 it really is, I think, sort of a dangerous slope we're, we're running off here. Now, one thing I thought was interesting in the book is, I mean, you're really upfront about 
basically how you've kind of fallen into some of this stuff about how, you know, you are just as guilty of this as maybe the rest of us are. How important was it for you to be that honest in the book? I mean, to go through your beauty regimen. I mean, to write about these things and just be very out there with, you know, I'm I'm doing this too. This is happening too. Uh, you know, I've never written a book like this before. I'm, I'm a old school academic. I've written serious uh, nonfiction academic books. So this was really tough um, to get up the nerve to write. But but there was an interesting thing that happened to me a number of years ago in the um, the Wall Street Journal asked college presidents to write their own admissions essays. And I whipped out something I had written in just a horrible moment several years earlier when I was having one of these terrible days where my husband was out of town and my kids were sick and the cat brought home a half-dead chipmunk. It was just a horrible day. But I wrote about it. And what was so interesting to me was I got an overwhelming response to this silly little essay because it struck a chord with women. And I was bombarded with women saying, oh, my God, I'm so glad you described my day. And I actually realized that there was a power in telling these, you know, goofy, crazy, messy stories from my life. And so I started experimenting with that, that mode of storytelling in the book. And it did, it did, I think it was therapy for me, first of all, to sort of put some of this stuff on paper. But, but I think it, it worked at some level. And I think it what I've heard from many readers of the book is that it sort of validated some of their own struggles. And, um, and that's, been, that's been a good thing for me to hear. It was, it was scary to put some of this stuff out there. But I think what, I'm, what, I'm, what I began to understand when I was writing it and have definitely understood since the book's coming out is that everybody has these stories. Everybody has the breast pump. Everybody has the moments when they're ready to kill their husband and their hair's horrible and they're you know, blowing the presentation because their kid had the croup last night. And I think the more we can get these stories out there without turning this into you know, a, a, you know, a massive you know, sob, sobbing event – it just normalizes um, the image of Wonder Woman, which is, which is a much better place uh, to be than perpetuating this myth of perfection. Deborah, thank you so much for being with us. It's been great. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.